I'd ask that you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 40. It's the last uh, chapter of the second uh, book of the Bible, and we'll be looking at the whole chapter together. Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the, the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it in all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become, uh, become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we turn our attention uh, to this uh, climax in the book of Exodus, we would ask for your help. Pray, Lord, that though the language and images may be unfamiliar to us, that you would help us to see uh, the wonderful truth that you have for us in this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would help me in weakness uh, to proclaim your word clearly and faithfully, and that, Lord, you would uh, uh, strengthen uh, us in faith and that you would help us to wonder at you, the God who delights to dwell with your people. This, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I uh, grew up in a camping uh, family. Uh, we weren't uh, glampers, uh, glamour campers, uh, you know, in our RVs with uh, televisions in them, only pretending to camp. I'm sorry if that's you. Uh, although we did check what movies were playing when we watched, walked past uh, on the way to the bathrooms. Uh, we weren't hardcore campers either, doing sort of the backwood, uh, backwoods thing. We were somewhere uh, in between. And this meant that I grew up uh, sleeping in tents uh, with my brothers, and we were mostly happy to do that uh, each summer for a couple weeks. It sort of represented an, an adventure. Uh, but after I had kids, uh, it, uh, we went camping, and it felt like the rules of the game had changed a little bit. Uh, like someone had sort of pulled a nasty uh, bait and switch. Uh, I once looked at uh, a tent as sort of a tolerable uh, sleeping environment, uh, but with kids, suddenly this was transformed into a canvas prison that we were locked into for the night. All right, we only hoped uh, to survive. So let's just say when I, when I see uh, tent poles and covers in my campsite, it evokes a different feeling uh, than when I was a boy. Setting those feelings aside, we're going to look at another tent this evening. We're going to look at the tabernacle. I wonder what you feel when, through the pages of our Bible, we look at the tabernacle. For some, I suspect the lengthy descriptions of the tabernacle um, evoke a sort of uh, sense of, of boredom or tedium. Uh, we sort of wonder what on earth is uh, going on here. We feel like our eyelids are growing heavy as we re- read these detailed descriptions. We read about the tabernacle and we see a strange tent in a far-off place with far-off people. And most of us think, I don't even read the instruction manual to my own tent. Why would I want to read the instruction manual for someone else's? Yet the Jews didn't find these instructions as, uh, as a tedious thing. And I wonder why not. What is it that we're missing? What are we supposed to see here in Exodus 40 that is wonderful, that's, that's worth giving our attention to. Well, in the tabernacle, we're supposed to see more than architectural plans for a tent. We're supposed to see God's blueprint, his plans and his purpose for the world. This strange tent, or this tent that at least seems strange to us, is telling the story, in a sense, of the universe. The tabernacle tells us where we came from, and where we're going. In the tabernacle, God is giving us, he's giving us a, a visual sermon about his plans and purposes for his people and for the world. Now this, you might say, uh, seems a bit far-fetched. It sort of looks like looking at, you know, sort of a, a Chevy Impala and being told there's a sports car under this engine, right? It doesn't 
doesn't seem to, to fit with what we're seeing. But I hope somehow this evening to show you from the Bible that the tabernacle is more than a tent and Exodus 40 is more than a building report. It's a story. And more than that, it's the story which gives meaning and purpose to our personal stories. And I want us to see that wrapped up in the tabernacle is the story that will help us make sense of God, ourselves, and the purpose of the world. And perhaps even uh, more concretely, if we believe what God is teaching us with the tabernacle, I believe that this will have implications for how we think of our public worship when we come together, but also our private worship when we meet with the Lord alone. I believe it has the capacity to reinvigorate or jumpstart our worship of God. So we need to ask the question, what story is the tabernacle telling us about ourselves and about God? And I hope to answer that question this evening by considering four further questions. First, what is our purpose? Then what's our problem? Then how does the tabernacle point to these two things? And then finally, how is our problem resolved and our purpose fulfilled? So what's our purpose? What's our problem? How does the tabernacle point to these two things? And then how is our problem resolved and our purpose fulfilled? So first, what is our purpose? If we want to understand a thing's purpose, we need to understand its origin. We need to ask, what was this made for? As a parent of young children, I find myself making this point regularly, right? The couch is not for jumping on, it's for sitting on. Or uh, shovels are for digging, not hitting your brother, right? Things are designed with a, a purpose. Just the fact that the side of the van can be used for pitching practice doesn't mean that it should be used for pitching practice. So when it comes to our purpose as human beings, we need to go back to the beginning, And the Bible gives us the account of our origins in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we see there is that God created mankind to live in and enjoy his presence. He created mankind to live in and enjoy his presence. This is our purpose. This is our original state. As part of God's original creation in the land of Eden, uh, on the mountain of the Lord, God plants a garden. And it was there in the very heart of the creation that God places Adam, the first man. Now, Scripture only gives us glimpses of this uh, garden paradise. It was a beautiful garden with trees that were attractive to the eyes, we're told, uh, and and, uh, bearing good fruit. There was the tree of life in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. Here was a place unmarked by the pollution of, of sin and suffering. It was a place of peace and harmony, uh, of bountiful, uh, bountiful, bountiful provision and abundant life. And yet, this wasn't even the best part of it. Most significantly, God was with Adam and Eve there. In this garden sanctuary, God spoke with Adam and Eve. He walked with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence. They had fellowship with God. God lived there in their midst. Imagine that. Every day, Adam and Eve could wake up and they could count on seeing with their eyes and savoring the blazing beauty of God. Adam and Eve were able to daily drink in the glory of God. This is what we're made to do. Our original programming uh, as sons and daughters of Adam remains intact. As humans, God has he's created us with a, a thirst 
for beauty, that he intended to be satisfied with nothing less than himself. He created us with a, a desire to drink in glory, not cheap glory. He's given us, if we can put it this way, he's given us expensive tastes. He's given us a desire to drink in and enjoy the glory that is found in him alone. This is our purpose, according to the scriptures. What then is our problem? Well, if you know your Bible, you know that this sweet communion with which Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden is quickly and radically disrupted when Adam and Eve sin. And as a result, they are evicted from God's presence, they're ejected from the garden, and they're cast in uh, to the wilderness. We read about this in Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 concludes by saying, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's a, an angelic or a heaven, heavenly creature, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Michael Morales, who's a, a Bible commentator writes, this expulsion from the divine presence is the central tragic event that drives the history of redemption, determining and shaping the ensuing biblical narrative. Don't miss that. Human sin, rebellion against God, results in our being driven out of the presence of God. And this problem is at the heart of the biblical story. We were made to enjoy God and his glory, but our sinful condition expels us from his glorious presence. And so this puts us in the position of being like people who were created to drink, but not having any access to water. Our thirst to see and savor the glory of God doesn't go away, but apart from God's presence, we have no way of truly satisfying that need. And so we go in search of glory and beauty to satisfy our hearts, and we might get flickers, we might get tastes, but we can't find anything that will truly satisfy. We go looking for it in our work, our relationships, our experiences, but we can't find what we're looking for. Not in any sort of deep, lasting, permanent way. Results may vary, but it leaves us disillusioned, despairing, bitter, restless. So our purpose is to see and savor God in his, his glory. Our problem is that our sin now separates us from his blessed presence. That is to say that while God is still everywhere, we no longer enjoy the blessing of his being present with us in a loving way. Now the book of Exodus makes clear that God has a plan to resolve our problem and restore us to his presence graciously, wonderfully, the book tells the story of God redeeming his people uh, from slavery in Egypt so that he could dwell with them. That's God's stated purpose in taking his people out of Egypt. And Exodus 40, the climax of the book of Exodus, provides God's initial answer for how he's going to restore us to his presence. Now, in Exodus 40, our, our passage, it's divided into four sections. And so together in these four sections, we see the construction the consecration, and the occupation of the tabernacle. We see Moses receive and implement instructions for building the tabernacle. It goes into great detail. Uh, here's what you're supposed to do, and then repeats again toward the end of the chapter. And, and Moses did as the Lord commanded. We see him, uh, Moses, receiving and following instructions for consecrating the priests and the place of worship. 
And finally, we see God's visible glory filling the tabernacle. Now, one of the important things about the uh, tabernacle is that it was communicating two uh, very different realities simultaneously. On the one hand, the tabernacle communicated that God graciously had drawn near to his people. He was now in their midst. He was dwelling with them. To understand how it communicated this, we need to know something about the tabernacle itself. And if you're more visually inclined, I'd encourage you to look at an ESV study Bible. They have some great diagrams in there that'll show you what the tabernacle looked like. Or you can go on YouTube. There's some great uh, 3D depictions of the tabernacle that might be of interest to you. But for our purpose tonight, the tabernacle that Moses uh, sets up was a tent. And it was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And it was divided by a curtain into two parts. There was the, the most holy place toward the back of the tent, and then there was the holy place. And the Ark of the, the Testimony, or the Ark of the Covenant, as it's uh, called elsewhere, was in the most holy place. And uh, the Ark of the Testimony was a, a golden box, and inside the Ark of the Testimony were uh, the Ten Commandments. And on top of that was a lid that was sometimes called the mercy seat. And on this lid, there were these golden cherubim, there's that, that word again, and they were bowing down in worship. And this ark uh, of the testimony was understood as the visible sign of God's presence with his people. It was also considered God's throne on earth uh, in, in a manner of speaking. Psalm 99 says that God is the one who is enthroned upon the cherubim. They have in view there the uh, the, the tabernacle and this Ark of the Testimony. So we've got the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place, and then there was the front portion of the tent, the holy place. So if the most holy place was the throne room of God, the holy place was where God received guests. And there were three golden furnishings in the holy place. There was a lampstand, there was a table, and there was an altar for burning incense. And each of these uh, uh, elements represented in their own way uh, an important message. They, they represented God's desire for communion with his people. So there was the golden lampstand, and that was designed to uh, look like a, a tree, an almond tree, and that symbolized the light of God's presence. It suggested that God was present there in the holy place. Then there was the golden altar, and that was used every morning and evening to burn incense. And this represented the prayers of the people ascending up uh, to God in heaven. It symbolized that God was, uh, his ear was near. He was ready to hear uh, the prayers and petitions of his people. And finally, there was the table for the bread of presence. And on this golden table, uh, there was 12 loaves of bread that were set on it each week. And just as Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel ate in the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai, so each Sabbath day, the priests uh, would change over the bread and they would eat the old bread in the holy place. So here, the priests are welcomed into God's uh, presence to enjoy a meal at his table. So these, these furnishings, these three pieces of, of furniture represented that God would meet with the priests. These priests, as representatives of the people, would enter into God's presence and they would enjoy communion or they would enjoy a fellowship with God in the holy place. And then we read at the end of our passage that God's glory 
fills the tabernacle. This would have been a, an incredible, breathtaking sight to behold if you were an Israelite there. His glory appeared like a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, this was the same glory that the people had earlier beheld from the base of, of Mount Sinai, and they saw on the mountain the smoke and the fire as God descended, and they experienced the, the, the mountain quaking as God was there. And now the glory of God has moved from Mount Sinai, and he's moved into the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was, uh, was placed right in the, the middle of the camp of Israel. So there was God right in the middle of the neighborhood, right in the midst of his people. In these ways, the tabernacle demonstrated that God had drawn near. He, he dwelt with his people. But we said that there was another important reality that the tabernacle communicated. On the one hand, the tabernacle communicated God drawing near, dwelling with his people. But on the other hand, the tabernacle demonstrated a remaining distance between God and man. It demonstrated the persistent nature of our presence problem, that we have been evicted from the presence of God. The tabernacle shows us that, that God moves toward his people. His, his heart is to dwell with us. And yet in the tabernacle, there's all sorts of reminders of what we lost in Eden. It's like the photos and mementos in a house that remind us of someone or something that we've lost. And the tabernacle has these types of mementos to say that Eden hasn't fully been recovered. Not yet. There's something missing. So let me point to three such reminders that haunt the tabernacle in a manner of speaking. First, we see it in who may enter the tabernacle. Yes, God dwelled among his people in a glorious and, and visible way, yet the tabernacle was not a public space. In verses 12 and 15, we're reminded that it was only Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, who were also priests, who could enter the tabernacle, the tent itself. The uh, congregation of Israel, they could enter into the courtyard, which uh, surrounded the tabernacle. They could do this to offer sacrifices for sin, but only the priests were allowed to enter the tent. The people themselves couldn't enter this sacred space as Adam had in the garden. Access to the sanctuary was limited to just a, a select few representatives of the people. The second reminder of the divine distance was related. It was in how the priests were able to come. The priests needed to be anointed and cleansed and consecrated if they were to minister in God's presence. And the bronze altar and the basin in the courtyard were there for that purpose. So for the priests to enter the, the holy place of God, they needed to be washed clean with the water of the basin. They also needed to um, uh, put on the priestly uniform or, or the priestly uh, garment. They needed to be sprinkled and anointed and set apart for this work. And they needed to offer sacrifices for their sins and for the sins of the people. Now that God had made a provision for sinful man to approach him at all was a gracious thing. But these ceremonial requirements highlighted what had been lost. There was no altars in Eden. None were needed. Prior to the fall, Adam could approach God freely as he was. 
But after the fall, the tabernacle's instruments pointed out that no longer could we safely be in God's presence on our own merit. The basin and the altar declared that sacrifices and cleansing were now needed as a condition for entry. And the third reminder of the separation that yet remained was embedded in the, uh, the layout of the tabernacle itself. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve walked freely in God's garden sanctuary. They were uh, in the holy place, in a manner of speaking, and they communed with God there. After the fall, a cherubim blocked the east entrance to the garden. Now, in a similar way, and it's no accident, the tabernacle's entrance also faced east, like the garden. And cherubim were also woven into the curtain, which separated the holy place from the most holy place. Cherubim were there in the tabernacle, guarding access into God's presence. So the curtain was a big reminder of Genesis 3, that sin had barred uh, sinful man from God's presence. So you see, while the tabernacle pointed to God's intention to dwell with his people, it also pointed out that his purpose was not yet fulfilled. God does dwell with his people, but not as he once did, and not as he will eventually do. The tabernacle does not ultimately fix the problem of presence. It wasn't meant to do this. There was a a, a planned obsolescence to the tabernacle. The, The tabernacle, though, gives the conceptual framework for understanding what did God intend to do to bring us back into his presence. And the solution to this problem of presence comes, of course, in the form of a child born in Bethlehem, Christ Jesus the Savior. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, John writes about Jesus saying, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, quite literally, pitched his tent among us, and we have seen his glory. So in the person of Christ, God comes and he takes up residence among his people. He comes to live among sinful man and with their eyes, they could behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As the old carol goes, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Not in the thunder of of, uh, and smoke of Sinai, not in the glory of the cloud or the fire of the tabernacle, but in the manger as a baby, in the temple as a boy, on the mountain with his disciples as a man, and, as, uh, and on the cross as a savior for sinners. There we beheld his glory. In his son, God was pleased to dwell and to have mankind look upon his glory. But even in the incarnation if we might say it with some trepidation, even in the incarnation, the incarnation was not sufficient to solve the problem of presence. It was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. For the incarnation only meant that for those in that day and and that place that they would benefit from it, that they would behold in that, that sense, in that immediate sense, the glory of God. And also the incarnation itself didn't Uh, resolve our sin problem. Not in itself. Sacrifices were still required. What was needed was the ministry of the incarnate one, of Jesus, not in the tabernacle of Moses. That was long since gone by his day. Nor his ministry in the temple. 
We needed Christ, the sinless high priest, to enter the tabernacle of heaven. The author of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle is a shadow or it's a a copy or a pattern of, of that which is in the heavenly places. That's why the details matter. And the author of Hebrews says that when Christ appeared as a sinless, spotless high priest, he entered the greater and more perfect tent that is the heavenly one. And he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood. And there, carrying his own blood, uh, the blood of his sacrifice, he atones for the sins of his people, and he purifies us by that blood. By his death, the curtain of separation, the curtain with the cherubim that, that pointed to that the path to God's presence was barred, was blocked, that curtain has been torn. The pathway back into God's blessed presence has now been opened to us through the ministry of Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, the author of Hebrews says that since this is the case, since the way is open, let us draw near in the full assurance of faith. It means that we're called on to trust in the ministry of Christ as as the, the high priest who's ministered on our behalf and to see in him that the path into the presence of God is now been opened to us. We draw near to him and he draws near to us. And from out of the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus sends his spirit to live in all those who would trust in him. In this way, even now, those who believe are like little tabernacles with God dwelling in us. Practically, here's what I want us to see, though. God made us to dwell with him and to enjoy his presence. And based on our sin, we would never taste the sweetness and fellowship uh, uh, with God again. We would never behold his smiling glory again. But based on his grace, the way back into his presence is open to us. And therefore, we should take advantage of it. In our worship together, we don't stand uh, in the tabernacle courtyard. We don't stand at the base of Mount Sinai. But by the blood of Christ, we approach God himself. We enter into the holy place, as it were, and we experience the light of his presence. We offer up our prayers like incense on the altar. We eat at the table in his presence in the Lord's Supper. We see and savor the glory of Christ as he's presented to us in his word and as the Holy Spirit dwells in our midst. What a motivation this is for us to come into worship together as God's people. We come because we can, because the way has been opened. And in our private devotion, we likewise approach God himself as we study our Bibles As we pray to him in in secret, we prayerfully read our Bibles, not as an, an obligation that's born out of religious piety, but because he has made us to draw near to him, to behold his glory, to enjoy him. And Christ has opened up the way for us to do just that. When I was in college, a buddy and I sponsored a uh, World Vision uh, child together. And uh, we were pretty lousy sponsors, actually. Uh, We would occasionally get letters uh, from the child, but we would never write back, right? We had done something kind for this, this kid, and, uh, but we were just a world apart, and that's the way it was going to be. But that's not how it is with God. The tabernacle shows us that God saves us not so that we can stand off at a distance, not so that we can go our own way, but so that we can come back into his presence, so that we can see and savor his glory as we were meant to do. 
Now, admittedly, our public worship and our private devotion will not always feel glorious. We'll battle distractions and confusion and doubt and fatigue. Our sin will cloud our vision of Christ in his glory as he's presented to us in the scriptures, which is why it's important to close with this. God's glory, which filled the tabernacle, anticipated his dwelling with us now by the Spirit, but both his filling the tabernacle and his filling us by his Spirit point to a still future event. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation sees a vision of the future. He sees uh, the new heaven and the new earth, the, the new creation. And John is struck not only by what's there, but by what's not there. There's no temple, he says, no tabernacle, no special sanctuary space. And that's not because of a, a planning oversight. For this new creation shall not have a sanctuary. It is the sanctuary. For there, John says, God fills all in all. And his glory shall be our light if we belong to him by faith. The symbols will be no more, only the reality. They're restored to God's presence to enjoy his glory forever just as we were intended to do. So see God's gracious heart. It's to dwell with his people and don't be discouraged. Seek his presence now. Seek his glory now to savor it in your worship publicly and privately, but do so knowing that one day we will do so perfectly as we behold the glory of God and the Lamb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that a way has been made open through the ministry of Jesus to enter into your presence. And Lord, we, we bless you for the ministry of Jesus, for his blood shed for us, for his death and resurrection, by which we who are exiles from your presence can now enter into the holy places. We can commune with you. We can know that you delight to have fellowship with us. And we can also, with joyful anticipation, wait for the day when one day our face shall be sight and we shall see you and behold your glory forever without interruption and without um, any blemish. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us in faith and that knowing that your heart is to dwell with us, you would work in us a great desire to uh, dwell and commune with you. And so, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.